This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab. Your host, Greg Gazin, speaker, blogger, author, and syndicated veteran columnist of Troy Media. Episode 176, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, a deeper dive with our guest, Matt Abrahams. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab. This is your host, Greg Gazin. Spontaneous speaking. Speaking on the fly without preparation is such a popular yet important topic that I thought I'd bring on both a special guest but also a special host for this episode. Some of you may recognize him. He's my lovely and talented co-host from the Toastmasters podcast, Ryan Levesque. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Greg. Thanks for calling me lovely. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. The check's in the mail. There we go. (laughs) Or I should call it e-transfer or Venmo, whatever they call it these days. Yeah, that'll work. Actually, I prefer crypto, if you don't mind. Bitcoin Uh, would be fine. Bitcoin, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to discuss that offline. All right. Now, folks, this is a special crossover podcast. You know, something that you see with, you know, CSI Miami and CSI Vegas and those other shows. Let's just call it a companion episode and almost a continuation of the interview that Ryan and I did on the Toastmasters podcast. Ryan, being such a fanboy of our guest, and again, he has this FOMO, fear of missing out, and I'm just kidding. No, it's actually true. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan actually brings a lot to the table. He's really good at asking some very thought-provoking questions, and also he's really good at, at correcting my grammar which he does all the time. But Ryan actually graciously agreed to be part of this this recording, and it's something that we haven't done before. And fortunately, we've actually recorded these two episodes back to back. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Toastmasters podcast, Ryan will get you to say something. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, so the Toastmasters podcast has been around since 2009. Typically, what we do is interview people who either wrote an article in the Toastmaster Monthly Magazine or were featured in the magazine. We also speak every year to the international president, to the world champion of public speaking, and other people who are doing amazing work in the world of Toastmasters and in the world of communication and leadership more broadly. So please do check it out. The show comes out twice a month on the 1st and 15th of every month at toastmasterspodcast.com. On Spotify, Apple. Wait, this is your line, isn't it, Greg? <laughs> Anywhere you get your podcasts. That sounds good. Now, folks, if you haven't yet listened to the episode, the previous episode, no worries. You can certainly check it out right after. And Ryan, would you take the honor of introducing our guest, please? Yeah, absolutely. I always love to introduce this person, especially Matt Abrahams is our guest. He's a lecturer at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. He's the author of two books, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, and his brand new book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. Matt's also the host of his own podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, the podcast. And rumor has it, he also has the Think Fast, Talk Smart sandwich in the works. (laughs) Not totally sure if that's true, but Matt Abrahams, welcome to Greg's podcast. 
I am thrilled to be both with Greg and his lovely host, co-host, uh, Ryan. <laughs> it's great to be back with you. And all this talk of sandwiches is making me hungry. So <laughs> I'll do my best to be efficient so we can all get some food. Uh, yeah. right. That's forthcoming. Of course, it's a joke, but there's also Think Fast, Talk Smart, the blog. Matt is a is an expert at, at branding. And thank you so much, Matt, for agreeing to do back-to-back episodes. Now, to kick it off, perhaps for the benefit of our guests, maybe who haven't listened to the first episode yet, Matt, could you just maybe reiterate a little bit about what your book is about, please? Yeah. So if you think about it, most of our communication that we do in our day-to-day lives is not planned. It's not scripted. We don't have the deck. We haven't practiced it. It's spontaneous. People ask us questions, they ask for feedback, we have to persuade or motivate people, we engage in small talk, we fix our mistakes or hopefully try to fix our mistakes. All of these are examples of what I call spontaneous speaking. So think faster, talk smarter is all about providing people with a methodology based on something I developed at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. It gives six steps to go through to actually achieve confidence and competence in spontaneous speaking. That's the first half of the book. And then the second half identifies very specific spontaneous speaking situations like small talk, like apologizing, like persuading, and helps people dive deeper into those specific situations they might find themselves in. I highlighted this following line in your book. Didn't physically, because I don't like to deface my books, but I put a sticky note on it. And you put, there's no right or wrong way to communicate, only better or worse ways. And this seems to be one of your key things. Why is it so important for people to really get this point? I'm going to answer that question in just one moment, but I want to give you explicit permission in my book to underline (laughs) dog ear, (laughs) fold pages. I actually see that the book as a handbook, a book that people will continually come back to as they find situations to need it. So please, please, please put that book to use. And and if you mark it up, I think that's what it, that that's my ultimate measure of success. If people are actually <laughs> highlighting and re- returning back to it, we put a tremendous amount of pressure on ourselves to do things right in our communication. We want to do it the best we can. And certainly striving to do things well is important. Unfortunately, it can get in our way in spontaneous speaking situations. We only have so much cognitive bandwidth. And if I am constantly judging and evaluating what I'm saying in my efforts to do it right, whatever that is, it gets in the way of me being able to do it well at all. I try to disabuse people of the goal of trying to be right when you communicate and rather focus on just getting it done so you can do it well. So I make a distinction there. And it's based on academic science. Our brains are not wired to multitask well. And if I'm challenging myself in the moment to get it right, it really is putting me at a disadvantage. (laughs) I have a good friend and author, Ernie Zielinski, and one of his lines is, do it badly, but just do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah, well, in some ways, and because when when you just give yourself permission to just do it, I think that's somebody else's slogan somewhere. But when you give people permission to just do it, yourself permission just to do it, you take a tremendous amount of pressure off of yourself. And and that enables you to do it much more nimbly and successfully. I think that was the shoe guys, Nike. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I should know, I should know since Phil Knight, he's, he's a big sponsor. Uh, in fact, the, the business school I teach is called the Knight School of Management. 
Oh, Nike, Nike looms large, uh, and I'm wearing Nikes as we're as we're speaking. Got it. Wow. Okay. Cool. Duly noted. <laughs> Matt, you share a concept in your book that comes from the field of cognitive psychology called heuristics. And I'd like to invite you to share with us what are heuristics, and then tell us how do they connect to this discussion of spontaneous speaking? Thank you, Ryan, for that question, because it goes directly back to what we just said. Your, your brain only has so much processing power. So we're smart. We leverage shortcuts. A heuristic is no more than a cognitive shortcut that we use. So it is a way of helping ourselves minimize the tax that we put on our brain when we have to make decisions, when we have to communicate, et cetera. For example, if a friend tells you that they had a rough day, a very simple communication heuristic is simply to say, well, it is what it is, right? It's just a saying that we have. It fulfills our obligation to show empathy towards our friend. It's input-output. You hear it, you say it, you're done. It doesn't take a lot of cognitive bandwidth. The problem with leveraging heuristics, and by the way, I want to share my favorite study. This, when I was an undergrad studying psychology, I learned this study by Ellen Langer. And this is back in the day when people would actually go to places to make photocopies. We didn't have printers. We didn't have that kind of thing. Uh, it's when people actually put things on paper. Uh, and she did this study in New York, of all places. And people were waiting in line to make photocopies. And she had some of her research collaborators go to this line and purposely cut in line with a bunch of New Yorkers who've been waiting a long time so that you can see that this is a, a potential powder keg of a situation. They mm -hmm. cut in and people did not say anything. They did not get upset, et cetera, simply if the cutter, the person cutting in line, used the word because. So what she did is she had people go cut in line and say, I need to cut in line because I need to make copies which is ridiculous because everybody in that line <laughs> is there to make copies. Right. But we have this heuristic in mind that if somebody says because, it's typically followed by something that's rational, makes a lot of sense. So I heard the word because, must be good, I'm gonna let the person cut. In other words, we use these shortcuts to help us navigate the world. Here's the problem. When you are in one of those heuristic mindsets, you limit and restrict what's possible. I used the example in our previous conversation. I'll use it again. Imagine somebody asks you for feedback. You hear feedback. You click into your heuristic. When I'm asked for feedback, I give one thing positive, I give one thing negative, and you start dishing out feedback. When in fact, if you would have actually stepped outside that heuristic thinking, you might have realized the person asking for feedback really wanted psychological and emotional support. They felt beat up in the moment or unprepared, yet you went into heuristic thinking and ultimately gave a response that wasn't appropriate. Maybe in this example, it's not career ending, but you can certainly extrapolate to a situation where negative consequences could result. So the goal is not to never use heuristics. The goal is to be able to dial them up and dial them down depending on the situation you find yourself in. What are some of the strategies you could use for loosening the grip of them? As with many things, you first have to become aware that you're doing it. So you have to start noticing in yourself and others when you are in one of those heuristic mindsets and you're just leveraging heuristics. And then challenge yourself to think, what could I do differently? And what are the benefits of acting differently in these circumstances? So you begin to think about the positive benefits, which then become self-reinforcing. And then really just challenge yourself, challenge yourself, say, in these circumstances, I tend to go into this heuristic processing. Anybody who's a parent 
should be able to reflect on how they interact with their kids and see that there are certain patterns that we invoke. My kids make me upset. I raise my voice, right? That's just a natural heuristic response. It turns out with my kids, at least, that if I get quiet instead of getting loud, they pay much more attention. You get into these cycles where I have a heuristic response. They expect that heuristic response, which is their heuristic response. And then we get in these cycles. So if you break the cycle, all of a sudden you can achieve some very different goals and that becomes self-reinforcing. So look for what you typically do. Think about how you could benefit by doing something differently and then actually try that difference and see how it benefits you. That just messes with them, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it gets my point across. I mean, well, hey, my two teenagers mess with me all the time. Well, I'm about to mess with you right now, Matt. <laughs> oh, fastening my seatbelt. Bring it on. So here we go. I don't believe you ever mentioned the late Peter Drucker, a pioneer in modern management theory, in your book. However, you say something in your book that seemed to me to contradict something he's famous for. And it's this line, what gets monitored gets managed. The implication that if you bring attention to something, you start tracking performance and results in that area, it tends to lead to an improvement in that area. Now, what you say flips that on its head. I know you're at Stanford Business School, but I'm not saying you're <laughs> calling uh, Peter Drucker wrong. But you say fixating on monitoring and judging performance decreases the likelihood that you'll do well. Can you explain the thinking behind this counterintuitive claim? Absolutely. I am not arguing you should not monitor your communication. I think you should change the focus of what you're actually monitoring in your communication. Let me be very clear. Many of us monitor, am I saying it right? Am I saying it the way I wanted? Is this the right word that I should be using? That's very self-absorbed monitoring. And there are certainly circumstances where that's really important. If you're a lawyer and you're in court, you probably need to say things exactly the right way. If you're in a job interview, monitoring what you're saying might be to your advantage. But much of our spontaneous speaking is not those high stakes, very textually specific circumstances. Instead, it's all about connecting. So I would say rather than monitoring how you are doing as the speaker, monitor the value that you're having for your audience. So we do monitor, but I just change the focus. I focus on my purpose. I focus on how it's landing with the audience. I focus on, is the audience benefiting from what I say? So it's really the area of focus. I like to refer to this when I lecture and teach. It's where you shine the spotlight. Is the spotlight on yourself or is it on the audience? And I would argue, as a communicator, that spotlight needs to be focused on your audience so you can be in service of their needs. Because ultimately, that's what you're trying to do is help them by teaching, persuading, encouraging, motivating, inspiring. So that spotlight needs to be facing out. So you are monitoring. It's what you're monitoring. Mm. That's the other reason I brought Ryan onto the podcast, just to mess with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, 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 yeah. Hey, I love a challenge. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I don't think what I said is, is counterintuitive to what you propose. It's just what you're focusing on. Yeah. No, no, no. You're absolutely. Because, yeah. Because you are monitoring and managing no, absolutely. And I always appreciate the way that you reframe things. And in fact, in the book, you suggest reframing of a speaking opportunity that you mm -hmm. concisely summarize. And I think it's those three words, conversations, not performances. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so I'm gonna take a step back even farther. So many of us see spontaneous speaking situations as challenging or threatening. I mean, think of a Q&A situation at the end of a presentation or a job interview. Many of us look at that as a challenge. Somebody's testing me, somebody's trying to show they're smarter or better, or I missed something. If I view that as a competition, then I will become defensive. I will close my body posture, I will be very curt in my responses, my tone will be very challenging. But if I see those circumstances as opportunities to expand, to collaborate, to connect, that changes everything. My posture changes, I might say more, my tone changes. So when we reframe, we need to see these spontaneous speaking situations as opportunities. Now, a more subtle reframe that we have to do is many of us, because we've played sports, maybe we did acting, singing, or dancing at some point in our life, we have this performance mindset. And in that performance mindset, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. In fact, some sports keep track of the mistakes you make. And we bring that mentality to our communication. There's a right way, a wrong way to do it. Instead, if we see communication as a conversation, where the goal is for us just to accomplish a mutual collaborative goal, then I approach it completely differently. I see it as my job is to help you, your job is to help me, and all of a sudden it's less stressful because we're collaborating. I'm not doing something to you or for you. We are doing something together. And believe it or not, it can be much more fun. So I actually enjoy Q&A situations. I enjoy small talk. A lot of people dread that. Why? Because I see it as a collaborative endeavor. It's a conversation. It's not a performance, a threat, or a challenge. Looking through the book, you and throughout the book, you reference examples and exercises from improv, actually quite a bit. I'm actually curious from your perspective, how has improv shaped your approach to communication? Foundationally. I am blessed to be surrounded by people who are experts at improv. There is a gentleman named Adam Tobin. He and I have been teaching a class together at Stanford Continuing Studies for over 12 years and, and plan to continue teaching it. He is an improv expert. There are other colleagues of his and mine now at the business school that do improv. Improvisationally thinking, thinking like an improviser, has fundamentally changed how I view the world. Seeing the world as one that's collaborative, understanding that my job in the moment might be one of my favorite sayings of, from improvisation. And Adam taught me this is don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> and that to me foundationally changed the way I think as a communication professor, somebody who teaches communication, I often thought my job was to teach people how to get information out of their brains into somebody else's brains. And what I've learned from the world of improv is that sometimes being quiet, doing nothing and listening and absorbing what's going on around me is the best and most important thing I can do to communicate. So don't just do something, stand there is one of many foundational principles I've learned from my colleagues that have changed the way I see what I do and hopefully make me a better partner, parent, teacher, friend, because it's more holistic. Matt, jumping to another concept in your book, you introduce what you playfully label the F word of public speaking. <laughs> can you tell us about that? You don't have to bleep me out on this one. <laughs> I'm talking about focus. One of the downsides of speaking spontaneously in the moment is we say more than we need to say. We can focus our communication, be concise and precise, 
I believe the most precious commodity we have in the world today is attention. And if I mismanage people's attention, they won't pay attention to me in the moment or in the future. So if I say more than's needed, then I get in trouble. And I think I've shared this with you before in my previous visits to your podcast. My mother has a saying that encapsulates that whole chapter. And I know she didn't create it, but it's tell me the time, don't build me the clock. And many of us in our communication are clock builders. And that whole chapter is about how can we be more precise and concise in what we say so that we can just tell the time when that's all that's needed. That's funny. I was thinking back to a, a girlfriend I had when I was in my youth. And if someone asked her if they had, if she had the time, uh, she would say yes. And that was it. <laughs> Not that she well, had the time to do something, but it was more along the lines as they were probably asking her, what time is it? Because she always wore a watch. But, <laughs> I see. Well, she was being very concise. I like that. <laughs> Speaking of having knowledge, uh, Matt, sometimes we might be a subject matter expert and we seem to suffer from the proverbial curse of knowledge that can just stop us in our tracks when we're actually trying to say something very concise in a short period of time. Can you share a little bit about that? Many of us know a lot about certain things that we're talking about. We can get ourselves bunched up because there's so much we want to say or think we need to say for people to understand to the level we do. The only antidote to the curse of knowledge is empathy. You have to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, perspective. You have to understand what they understand about your topic and what they need. And once you do that, then you can begin to relay your information, use your expertise to help translate what you're trying to get across so they understand it. And I like using the word translate and make accessible. I'm not talking about dumbing it down or oversimplifying. We need to actually translate what we're saying so people can understand. One of the great pleasures I have besides hosting my podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, is in writing this book, I met with a lot of people who apply these principles, but in ways we might not think about it. So when I was trying to focus on focus, I know that's a little meta, I interviewed a gentleman <laughs> who was a former editor of Cliff's Notes. Remember those of us of our age, we use those a lot. Now everybody uses generative AI for the same purpose. <laughs> right. But I talked to him and I said, you know, what do you see the purpose? And he, he works with lots of other, besides Cliff's Notes, he, he does lots of other lit, lit notes and uh, all these things. And he sees his job as a translator, not as a paraphraser, but as a translator. We all have to see ourselves as translators of content. How do we take what's in our brain or what's our expertise and translate it for somebody who doesn't have the same experience, background, time served, and make it so they can better understand what we're trying to get across. So that's really what focus is all about. Super. Matt, I know the second half of your book talks about different applications of real world scenarios where you give coaching and ideas on how we can improve. One of those areas I, I know you've mentioned before, you love Q&As and that makes you a unique human being mm -hmm. because a lot of people really hate handling the question and answer period of a presentation. That might be what fills them with the most terror. Can you enlighten us on what are some of the things you share in your book that can help people to be more successful in handling a Q&A portion of a presentation? 
I could speak for a long time on this, so I'm going to try to practice the F word. I'm going to try to really focus. So let, <laughs> let me let me give an example of the way I approach the book, mindset and messaging. The mindset of Q&A, I believe, is that questions are actually gifts. They're opportunities for you to expand, to extend, to, to connect and collaborate. So we first have to think that our Q&A is something that's positive, number one. Number two, we need to practice. Think about what questions might come up in the moment based on what I've said. You can focus group it. You can go to people and say, hey, I'm going to go and do this, or I'm interviewing for this job. What do you think certain questions are? The goal not being to memorize and script your answers, but to prepare. I mean, think of it this way. If you're an athlete and you're playing a sport, you do a lot of drills to help prepare you. So if you're playing basketball or soccer, you put out those orange cones and you dribble around it either with your foot or your hand, depending on the sport. And you do that a lot to prepare yourself. In the game you play, there's, there are no cones, there are people instead, and you have to adjust and adapt, but that drilling helps, so practice is important. When it comes to structure, structure is critical, and when you answer questions, I propose a very specific structure in the book. I'll highlight it very quickly. It has an acronym ADD for adding value. You answer the question, you give a detailed example, and then you describe the relevance or importance of your answer. Let's do this. Let's let's play this out in real time. Ryan or Greg, imagine you're interviewing me to do what I do today, which is uh, I'm, a, I'm a teacher of communication skills at a business school. Imagine you were trying to fill a slot. I show up as an interview candidate. What would be a reasonable question that doesn't have just a yes, no answer to it? What would be a reasonable question you would ask to ascertain if I'm a qualified candidate for that job? I have 27 people lined up for this job, Matt. Why should I hire you? I've been teaching communication skills for over 25 years. I've taught at the graduate and undergraduate level in the corporate world, as well as the public sector. What that means is if you hire me, I can tailor my material to be very specific to the needs of your participants. I answered the question, I gave a concrete example, and then I explained the relevance. The structure helped me determine what to answer. It's a roadmap. I just have to put in the information. So I like to say it's a recipe. You just need to know the right ingredients, have them prepared. You do that through practice. And all of a sudden you can answer a question in the moment. It's about your mindset. It's about your message. That's what helps not just with Q&A, but with any spontaneous speaking situation. When you said that, I just pictured a fillable PDF in my brain. <laughs> Yeah. Well, somebody, somebody once said, they said to me, so you're just teaching people how to color by numbers. In some ways, that's right. In that, if you follow these steps, you're going to get a good outcome. If you color by numbers, you're going to get something that looks good. But what that color by numbers analogy or that just fill in the PDF analogy misses, there's a whole bunch of creativity and spontaneity that can come as a result of having that structure. Jazz musicians, improvisers, athletes, they are able to create beauty and just exquisite performance because they have these structures and foundations that they rely on. So those analogies of color by numbers or fillable PDF miss that creativity that the structure actually frees you up to do. Yeah, the numbers they're referring to are more like the number of decimal points in pi, right? It kind of goes on forever <laughs> and you never get to your point. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Wow, that's just brilliant. Matt, this is maybe a strange question, but I wonder with these structures, uh, this one you just gave us an example of add, answer, detail, describe, how do you hold that 
in your mind? Like when a question comes up and you think of that structure, are you like picturing those words in your mind or is it sort of just an intuitive thing that you've done it so many times you just think add and you automatically know where to go? Like what, what's that visually, kinesthetically, auditorially in Matt Abraham's brain? How does that play out? Being in my brain is not a place anybody wants to be, believe me. But I have done this for so long and taught this for so long and taken so many questions in this example. To me, it's intuitive. It's much like, you know, I live in the Bay Area. It's much like watching Steph Curry take a basketball shot, right? It just happens. It's gracious. (laughs) It's graceful. It just, it's just a response. But he didn't start that way, nor did I. And and I, this is now ridiculous. I'm comparing myself to Steph Curry. So let me pull back <laughs> from that as I'm saying this. I'm like, well, that's making presumptions that, that are not true at all. But the point is you have to practice. You have to drill it. So, so mm-hmm. with this particular structure, what I recommend people do is after you read something or you listen to a podcast like yours or like mine, stop, think of a question based on what you've just heard, and then use that material to... S- put into the structure. You have to drill it. You have to practice it. Another great way to do it, many of your listeners probably work for companies that have FAQs, frequently asked questions. Go back and look at those FAQs and restructure them in the ADD format. By doing that, not only do I think we'll get clearer answers that'll help everybody, but it is the practice of repetition that will help you be able to do that better. I interviewed a woman for my book. She helps people for political debate. She's worked with every Democratic presidential and vice presidential candidate for the past several cycles. And they drill questions. They don't memorize questions, but they practice answering different questions on different topics so that the candidate can become more comfortable in the moment, on the stage, with millions of people looking to answer a question that's similar to what they practice. So the only way you get better at it is through practice. And then eventually it becomes more intuitive, which in this case, for this particular question you asked, this just happens intuitively. I don't see anything. I just do it reflexively. The reference to Stephen Curry was very timely because I just watched his docuseries or documentary on the weekend called Underrated. I thought that was actually quite, uh, quite timely. I have not seen it, but I want to. There is so much material to cover, but I have to apologize because we are running out of time. Apologies is one of the six applications, and Mm -hmm. just saying you're sorry is not enough, especially when saying you're sorry is something that we get so emotional about it. So Matt, as our final question, before we ask you where people can find you and find your podcast and your books, what's your strategy for handling apologies? Well, so first we have to do it. We have to, we have to apologize. Many of us uh, avoid apologies and we, we try to stay away from them or we try to protect our own egos. If you have made a transgression, you need to apologize for it. And timeliness matters. The, the closer to the offending event, the better. I know this will surprise you. I have a structure for apologies. <laughs> I call this triple A. Here in the United States, AAA is like roadside a service when you're really roadside service when you're really in trouble. <laughs> the AAA stands for acknowledge, appreciate, and amends. To start, you acknowledge the transgression. You name it. You don't say, "I'm sorry I made you feel." No, I'm sorry that I cut you off when you were speaking. So I name what I did. So I acknowledge the behavior appreciate how that might have made the other person feel. When I interrupted you, I prevented you from sharing an important point. 
And I can imagine that's frustrating. So I appreciate the circumstance that I created because of my behavior or lack of behavior. And then make amends, explain specifically what you will do the next time. So I might say, the next time we're in a meeting together, not only will I work to listen carefully until you're done, I'm actually going to paraphrase what you said before I add my contribution to make sure I heard it and everybody else saw that I heard it. AAA, acknowledge, appreciate, amends. That's a great way to package up a complete, connected, genuine apology. And it makes it sound sincere. Well, it is sincere because it comes from a place of caring and, again, the audience's perspective. Matt, this has been absolutely fantastic. I mean, we appreciate the opportunity to speak to you on two occasions. So, folks, just a reminder, if you haven't yet listened to the Toastmasters podcast episode that we spoke recently with Matt, and we encourage you to listen to that after you listen to this. And again, if you found it valuable, you can find Toastcaster at toastcaster.com. That's like Toastmaster, but with a C. You can find it on Apple and Google Podcasts. And of course, the Toastmasters podcast at toastmasterspodcast.com, Google, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Ryan, any final thoughts? Oh, I just want to thank you, Greg, for having me on your show. In addition to Matt, a double dose of delight here. Why don't we ask Matt to share with your listeners where they can follow up with him and find everything related to the world of Matt Abrahams? Sounds good to me. Take it away, Matt. First and foremost, it is always a pleasure to speak with both of you. Your questions are in depth. They are right on and hopefully invoke answers from me that are that can be helpful. So thank you. The best way to reach me is to check out mattabrahams.com. If you are a user of LinkedIn, connect with me via LinkedIn. I do a lot of sharing there. And most importantly, consider listening to the podcast I host. It is a good complement to the one you're listening to right now. It's called Think Fast, Talk Smart. You can find it wherever you get podcasts. You can check out other podcasts on Toastcaster where we featured Matt. That was episodes 93 and 153. And he is a five-time offender on the Toastmasters podcast, episodes 43, 57, 67, 111, and 237. And I wonder if those are the super Powerball numbers, but nevertheless. I was just thinking bingo. <laughs> bingo. <laughs> that would be a big bingo card. <laughs> It is always an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And again, once again, Ryan, glad that you were here to, uh, to support. My pleasure. Thank you both. Congratulations. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about, and perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies, a new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com.